somebody came in the studio with a, a Fairlight, you know, the original sampler, and the guy who brought it in is like explaining sampling and what that was and how, what you could do with it. And of course, the first thing anybody wanted to do in it was fart into a mic and, <laughs> and, and then play it back at different pitches. So, so that was your first contribution to the world of recording yeah. as a five-year-old? Yeah. Awesome, man. Yeah. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Hey, rock stars, it's your host, Lid Shaw, and welcome back to Recording Studio Rockstars, the podcast bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Jason Lenning a musician, songwriter, producer, and twice Grammy-winning engineer. He was even nominated for the Best Engineer Grammy in 2008. Jason grew up in Nashville, spending his childhood in and around studios as the son of the successful country producer Kyle Lenning, who produced nearly every record by Randy Travis. So Jason has always been at home in the studio and immersed himself in bands and recording projects full-time from a very young age. I've had the pleasure of recording Jason's band, The Silver Seas, here at the Toy Box Studio. Actually, right now I'm here at Jason's studio. Uh, what's the name of your studio? It doesn't really have a name. We, we uh, Sometimes we call it the Drones Club after the uh, P.G. Woodhouse. The Drones Club. Yeah. All right, cool, cool. We recorded their album Chateau Revenge, and then later an all-acoustic version of the same record for vinyl release called The Blue Edition. The sessions were a ton of fun, tracking the whole band live through the MCI console to analog tape and then into Pro Tools to later be mixed by Brad Jones. In The Silver Seas, he writes and records with Daniel Tashin and has also worked with other Nashville artists like David Mead and Josh Rouse. I've known Jason for 20 years as someone who is constantly making records. In fact, when I was making a record with Jason, I had a chance to glance over at his calendar one day. And it's the only calendar I've seen that looks busier than my calendar. (laughs) Uh, Some of Jason's credits include George Jones, Erasure, Matt Carney, Guster, Bill Frizzell, and Allison Krauss. I'm psyched to be joining you from right here in Jason's studio in Nashville. Please welcome Jason Lenning to Recording Studio Rockstars. Jason. Howdy, everybody. Are you ready to rock, dude? I'm ready to rock. I know you are, man. (laughs) Are you ready to groovy rock? Groovy rock? I'll do my best. Uh, how would you describe Chateau Revenge? It, uh, listening back to it, I was reminded it is pretty groovy rock. It is groovy. It's um, Daniel uh, really is a historian of music and a student of music, and and also a real innovator. So he, you know, in, in that he often will like latch onto an era and and write and do his thing with that era. And and I would say that uh, Chateau Revenge is like a late seventies, early eighties era that yeah. Daniel decided to to toy with. I've always noticed and, uh, that that's a smart way to go about making music and making records. A lot of people that I really admire seem to look back at something and sort of directly quote it as a place to start. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was Daniel's record? Remember the one that he released sort of to friends and family before you guys formed the Silver Seas? Yeah. The well, that wasn't, it actually was after the first Silver Seas record. Oh, it was? Okay. Um, was it Love Test? Is yeah, Love Test. Oh, yeah. so good. It was... We had made the first Silver Seas record, and which is a real dreamy, ballad-heavy 
I don't know, maybe chamber pop is a good word for what that album is. More more of Daniel playing with the 60s as opposed to the 70s and a Beach Boys kind of way and lots of lush harmonies. And he'd finished that and then he started writing new stuff and it was really good, um, but it didn't sound anything like what we thought the Silver Seas were doing at the time. And And so I said, why don't we just make this a Daniel solo record and let's make it. We can still make it together, but let's not call it the Silver Seas because I don't really know what to do with it. So he... He did that, and I love that record. And yeah, but it, we he never put it out, and he just kind of gave it to people. Well, I can say it made it to our car, and we drove around Nashville listening to it constantly. Yeah. It was super cool. Oh. Um, so rock stars, Daniel is Daniel Tashin, who sings in The Silver Seas. And um, not to go on too far of a tangent, but Daniel's father is Barry Tashin of Barry and the Remains, which was the band that toured opening for the Beatles on their first U.S. tour. Yeah. And open for them at Shea Stadium, I yeah, believe, right? It did. Yeah, pretty amazing stuff. I had the pleasure of recording those guys as a follow-up to our Silver Seas oh, really? album. Yeah, they I didn't came know that. and remade all their hits with me at the studio at the Toy Box. But that's another story for another day. And uh, Jason, let's jump back in. So tell us, I've got a kind of an oddball question to start out, but when you were starting out in music, what did it recording smell like to you? That's a great question, and it has a it, there is an answer. Um <laughs> Shag Carpet. No, it smelled like, um, you don't smell this smell much anymore because I think it is the smell of tape and, and hot electronics. And, uh, and when that smell drifts into the smell that's coming off of a coffee pot, you pretty much get the smell of every studio that existed before, you know, 1995. That's the magic combination. Yeah. And it's a really, uh, it's a weird smell. And sometimes I'll, I'll grab an old piece of equipment and, or something, and you'll you'll get a whiff of it. It's like, well, it's such a nostalgic thing, and and not many studios smell like that anymore. But it was a, it's definitely like, um, you know, electronics and coffee. Yeah. Um. So you know, I started out over at Alex the Great with Robin Eaton and Brad Jones, and it was one of the things I noticed about their studio too, because we still had like a tape machine and some mm-hmm. old gear in there. Is you'd walk in and there'd be this smell about it. You smell the wood and the old gear and everything. Robin would always joke that it was mildew or something. I'm like, no, it's not. It's cool. You yeah, know? it is cool. But I'm proud to say that even in my studio with some of the old gear, the old console and the tape machine that I walk in some days, I'm like, oh, there it is. You know, yeah. there's that thing. And I don't know, what is it now? I mean, like, um, you, of course, you, this doesn't count because it's a brand new studio that you're you're in now. And, and it probably smells like, you know, new construction or something. Yeah, it does. It smells like whatever candles in the bathroom. <laughs> or, uh, you know, or whatever is, is, I like to cook and we have a kitchen here. And so whatever's like on the stove and, or, or, you know, sometimes for better or worse, it smells like the people who, who come, <laughs> yeah, well, come by. Sometimes normal, it's great. Right? And sometimes it's not. You know, every studio well, smells like that at the end of the day. It's like yeah. when you walk into the classroom and the, the other class just leaves, that yeah. was always the worst, yeah. you know? Um, so, but I, I do kind of wonder, I can't help but wondering, is there sort of a newer smell that everybody's going to be familiar with that smells like computer, you know, computer parts and laptops and, and, you know, Mac pros and there's gotta be screens and stuff like that. I don't know. I always think it's like every time I open a package of something new, I always try to smell the air because I, in my mind, I'm like, this thing was packaged in China. And so this is Chinese air that's coming (laughs) out of this thing. So I always try to get my nose close to it, but I've yet to notice anything, uh, different about it. Well, I certainly know what the feel of a new studio is. It's a burning sensation on your leg from having your laptop sitting on your, you know, while you're in the living room chair for too long. Yeah, (laughs) totally. Yeah. 
Uh, that one needs to get sorted out. I, somehow I feel like this may not be good for us and our future generations. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, so um, share a story with us about growing up in the studio. You know, your your dad was making records all the time. It had that smell to it. You know, how what do, what are some of your earliest recollections about walking into the studio and seeing stuff happening? Uh, it was a really attractive place to me because everybody seemed really happy. N- nobody was ever bummed out on a session and um, people were having fun. Um, things were getting done and it was a busy time. There's great. Um, I think more so then than now, but like you couldn't really do anything by yourself in a recording studio. Yeah. Back it was a real and so yeah, there had to be a group of people on a team and a, and a schedule. And I think because of that, there was also a little bit more reasonable lifestyle to it. Cause it was like everybody showed up and clocked in and did their thing and then went home and, and it's uh, and it's a lot more scattered now, which I don't mind. I mean, I enjoy the schedule. Well, especially in Nashville at that time. I mean, that was the real yeah. era of sessions, right? Yeah, you know, totally. Um, three sessions a day with with session musicians coming in in groups. Yeah. So there was a real cool uh, rhythm and structure to it. And uh, and then also being little, which is something that I really remember vividly, was anytime you'd walk in the control room and they'd be playing back the track, the the, it'd be like going to an EDM concert today and the way that the kick drum will rattle your chest. Like being four or five years old and just in a regular studio, a pair of NS10s would do that to a kid that small. That was yeah. a real great, I love the way that felt and, I, and I, uh, I still love it when I can be in a room that's got speakers big enough to still do it. Yeah, I see you just got a pair of NS10s right up there. So are those yeah. the same ones you had when you were five? No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they were around then. Well, so the record that you might have been walking in on when your dad was recording, would it have been a Randy Travis session? Probably not at that stage. It would have been... Probably a lot to have to remember. Even. Maybe like England Dan and John Ford Coley, or there was a band called Thunder that he worked with. And oh, cool. There, um, something like that, you know, and as I got a little older, and I was paying, I wasn't paying a ton of attention at, at you know, until I was... 12 or so. I you probably it. just remembered the the people and the way they looked a little more. Yeah. Like you just saw some of the same characters. People, around. I remember uh, somebody came in the studio with a, a Fairlight, you know, the original sample. Yeah, what did it look like? I don't think know that I've even seen it. It looked like a big old, you know, early NASA kind of computer with the yeah. tube TV that you had to hook yeah, up like to. Yeah, like a it. giant IBM with a green green yeah. letters on the screen. It was kind that of kind of thing. And, and the guy who brought it in is like, explaining sampling and what that was and how, what you could do with it. And of course the first thing anybody wanted to do when it was fart into a mic and, <laughs> and, and then play it back at different pitches. So, so that was your first contribution to the world of recording yeah. as a five-year-old. Yeah. Awesome, man. Yeah. I got to figure out how I can put that on the website for a tweetable quote, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's very cool, man. So, you know, you're in and around the studio. When, what do you remember about the transition to you feeling like, this was something you wanted to do. Did you have to, did you do it in a way that you, it, it sort of connected to what your dad did or do you do it in a way that felt like a rebellion against what your dad was doing? Some of both. I think um, I really appreciate and, and appreciate it and still do the kind of blue collarness that my dad brings to it. It's not, it's humbling work and it's not fancy work and it's, it's a, it's fun, but it's also, it, there's usually it's not very glamorous and and I always appreciated that it was really like okay it's a job let's go get to work and so I liked that part of it but musically I was really drawn to um you know thing more alternative stuff like the pixies or the talking heads 
Whereas he kind of came up very pop commercial music. I mean, but he was also, you know, one of the millions of kids who saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show and went out and got a guitar the next day. And so now did he know Barry and the Remains? I don't, I know he does now, but I don't think he, I don't know if he was paying attention at the didn't time. didn't see their show back then. Yeah. You know, and he was in Southern Illinois where I don't think anything got on anybody's radar that wasn't on television. Yeah, right. Um, right. Or, or the radio. Well, that's the trip, man. Does he, did he ever sort of tell you stories about seeing the Beatles for the first time on TV? Oh, yeah. I mean, he just, just said, just like any, anybody, he said he, the first time he heard the Beatles on the radio, he thought that the Everly Brothers had just released the coolest song he'd ever heard. <laughs> that's that's cool, he thought, man. this is, wow, the Everly Brothers have really stepped it up. That's a trip. That's yeah. so funny. And then he found out who it was. And he, he learned it was, in fact, an invasion. Yeah. The British yeah. invasion. <laughs> well, cool, man. Well, so um, how about one of the, uh, I guess the Fairlight would be a pretty good kooky thing to remember from the studio, but what's another like weirdest thing you remember seeing as a kid in the studio? Do you any giant, like real, real unusual characters coming in? Everybody showing up dressed in like tasseled leather. Everybody was unusual. Hippie, country um, hippie. Yeah. There was, I can't remember the guy's name, but he was a keyboard player and he, he showed up and pretended to, there was a, he pretended that there was a malfunction with his rig and said he needed to make a phone call and made a fake phone call and then went out to his car and changed into this whole outfit of like coveralls and a hat and a fake beard and everything and came back as the repair guy <laughs> and started doing this whole thing. And it took a few minutes for everybody in the room to figure out that it was the same. Guy. That's crazy. So just, That's hilarious. And there were always characters <laughs> like that. <laughs> he was one of the non-union musicians yeah. on the session. That's um, really funny. Now, um, I saw, remember seeing your dad's place. Um, he sort of had this wonderful home studio and was this, would that have been where you were growing up or were you guys growing mm -hmm. up? Was that, that more recent? No, he didn't have a home studio until I was never when I was, you know, living there as a kid. Right. I guess it probably wouldn't have been reasonable at that early stage of recording. Yeah. They're just, the, the you needed a rocket ship too, to make a record. Totally. Um, so there was a studio, a couple of studios that he worked at a lot that, um, Lee Hazen had a, who was a great engineer, had a studio in his basement called Studio by the Pond, where my dad made a, all the early uh, England Dan and John Ford Coley records. And I would go hang out there after school. And Lee had a studio in his basement and upstairs was the, the coolest, like out of a movie kind of junk shop. Uh, he had player pianos and weird random antique radios and TVs and and I think every Playboy magazine that has ever been published. And I think I've only got one in my studio. Yeah. And I've sort of carefully hidden it in the magazine rack just in case <laughs> kids come over now. But it's um, funny because like my studio has been my studio has been my studio transitioning from young single guy to, you know, yeah. older dad, you know, at least attempting to be respectable and, and smart around kids. And so yet I still have all the same stuff and I've got magazines that, you know that I thought were really cool when I was young and single. Right. And right now maybe would, <laughs> would be a little hard to explain. Um, Nothing unsavory, of course. Yeah. Lee was a character though. He had a deal with the local liquor distributor and every week a, a low and brow truck would just pull into his yard and unload cases of beer. God. And the guy had, he was just a collector of stuff. He had pretty much every water sports toy no, jet skis and wet bikes and catamarans and because oh, the studio was right near the, the studio lake, was on the on the on Old Hickory Lake. Oh wow, cool! So for a kid, it was really fun for me to go hang out there after school and just goof off. You could, you know just 
It was like a wonderland. That's a good thing too, as a dad in the studio, because a lot of times you have to go back to work and, and you, you know, the kids might have to just sort of hang around the studio. Yeah. So hopefully the kids have something fun to do. Yeah. Now they just go on an iPad, right? Or iPhone or computer. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. All right. Fun, well, huh? so now how about sharing a, a, an inspirational quote, something to kind of kick us off that gets um, our listeners, who I like to refer to as the rock stars, inspired to hit the studio? Yeah. I, I th- thought about this for a minute. They, there's two quotes. And uh, one is, uh, I think Paul Worley came up with this. You hear it around town a lot. And, and, uh, and I love it. It is, um, there's no such thing as a musical emergency. <laughs> and, Sorry. and I love that. Well, let's because, elaborate on that. Well, for me, it means uh, that there's no problem that can't be solved. And there's there's so much urgency with people, I think, in the way they make music and the way people take themselves so seriously. And their timeline is is always, um, you know, faster than it ought to be. And there's just a lot of uh, emergencies, it seems to be. Why do we be. do that? And I, yeah, I don't know why. but and And I think because of the job we have, we're naturally uh, people pleasers. And so you start to take on that sense of emergency that your client has and it's not healthy. And so it's a good quote to remember, I think when, when the world is breathing down your neck and, you know, and also I think it means that the best musical solution to a problem is not one to be done in, in a state of emergency, you know, (laughs) step back and zoom out and look at what needs to get fixed and fix it. um, and That's another quote that I like, I, I heard this, uh, there were these, it was an NPR piece discussing life on other planets. And this scientist was talking about life versus intelligent life. And he said, um, life doesn't care about intelligence. And I just like hit me and I was like, well, and I wrote it down and I, and I see it like in this notepad thing that I have and I see it every day. And it, I don't think it's what he meant. I think he was talking about life as in life on another planet isn't interested in whether or not the, that life is intelligent. Or, right. But, but I like the quote, life doesn't care about intelligence. Cause I, for me, it means that overthinking something is not necessarily going to make it any better. And, uh, yeah. And that, especially in art, I think just making room for an emotional reaction and a kind of a guttural moment is, uh, can be really powerful. Well, that's fascinating stuff. And that actually, um, is bringing up some memories on another show I listened to, um, <clears throat> Singularity One-on-One. It's a podcast about singularity and sort of like, you know, high science. And they were talking about intelligence and intelligent life. They were talking about artificial intelligence. And there's this, uh, I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent here, but this concept that if artificial intelligence shows up, it could be way smarter than humans and, oh my gosh, what's going to happen and all this stuff. And what the scientists pointed out, which I thought was so brilliant about it, was that intelligence and smarter than, there is no such thing. In in other words, every uh, person, every species, um, a computer, a life on another planet, they would all have a different version of what's intelligent and what's smarter because smartness is actually our ability to learn how to do things better that we need to do that are important to us. Right. And so I know this sounds like a big tangent, but it it all comes back. It wraps up, I promise. <laughs> but your idea of, um, you know, there's, uh, would life be interested in intelligent life, an emergency in music, the idea that maybe um, you need to worry about what other people are thinking, for example, when you're making music. Uh, each of us, you know, when you're working with a group of people, you might see somebody else make a musical choice and a creative choice that you think isn't so intelligent or isn't so smart 
because it doesn't fit what your idea of mm -hmm. what you want to do with music mm -hmm. is. But the truth is, it might be a great fit for what they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. You know, so just seeing that parallel between how, like, even being smart as individuals in a band or on a recording session is up to the individual. Like, each of us has a different version of what yeah. doing something really smart is. I yeah. hope that made sense. No, that it totally sense? does. And I often um, will stop myself from saying no to an idea for that reason, because half the time, something you know won't work actually works or if it doesn't work it sends you off in a direction that ultimately gets the artist what they want in, in a way that does work and if you had if you just shut it down then you never would have gotten there or never yeah. would have discovered that I, I totally agree so let's see remembering our session let's see if we can conjure up some memories of stuff that we did on on chateau revenge i think wasn't there one where we um we put a, a contact mic on the piano and then ran that out to an, a guitar amp with a super reverb on it. And yeah. that was part of the sound. I remember mm -hmm. that being a really unusual thing. Yeah. And I remember there's on the song Jane, we did a prepared piano thing where we were plucking the strings and there it was more notes than I could do by myself. And so Daniel came out. I think we actually were hitting the strings with pencils. Yeah. And we'd muted all the strings we didn't need. And so Daniel came out and... Uh, it took two of us to play the part and we had to kind of share in the, you know, using pencils as mallets, play that part. And, and then that contact mic went to a guitar amp. And that's the kind of stuff that can create, um, not to pat ourselves on the back too much, but that, that kind of thinking can create a really cool sound on a record. Mm -hmm. Yet at the same time, at the beginning of that idea coming, coming to fruition in the control room, somebody says, hey, maybe we should try this. It's so easy for an idea to get just shot down. If you're, yeah. if time's an issue or you're like, you know, trying to get something done and it sounds a little too mm -hmm. outside, it's really easy to just to, to miss out on those kind of opportunities in the studio. Yeah. Yeah. And if you don't, I think time is the biggest thing. And, and like when you choose to open the door to those kinds of, you know, experiments, I, I prefer those things to happen earlier than later so that you get that sound early in the process and it becomes a rudimentary piece instead of this kind of tacked on. Right. Instead of mix, thing. mix 32.4. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it also just to have those kind of creative juices flowing as opposed to let's just perform this properly right now. And yeah, you know, I think it's good, but it takes, does take planning. I mean, you gotta, you gotta think through when you're going to have that happen before you go in the studio. Okay. So then let's take it on the flip side. So how do we avoid, going down rabbit holes where, you know, failed attempts when we, when we try stuff in the studio, what kind of stuff goes on in your mind when there's an experiment happening and you're not feeling it or you think it's not working? How do you deal with that? I, I'm pretty passive and will, if it's not working, I'll really try to, um, rather than saying no, I'll try to uh, speed us up toward the brick wall so that the, the person who's trying the experiment you know, I don't want to derail it, but if it's not working, let's go ahead and hit the wall. Let's already. hit the wall and acknowledge that it didn't work and move on. And so, so I'm picturing like the crash test car with the dummies flying through yeah, the car and all that. It's we're, totally. we're just trying to get let's to that get point to that as quickly as possible, so we can reset and go get <laughs> back to work. And um, yeah, because I feel like it's important to uh, let everybody in the room feel heard, and uh, you know, and, unless there's something that's just doesn't make sense to try then. And then you would still try to find a way to 
maybe let's do that tomorrow or let's get through this stage. And, you know, there's a lot of kind of ADD kind of thinking that happens with, particularly with less experienced artists who have an idea that is a, might be a great idea, but to, to do it would require us to totally derail this road we're on and let's not do that. You know, let's save it and do that another day. Yeah. It seems like during a tracking session, there's a lot less room. It's a lot easier to derail it by accident and you want to sort of let's, we've already built this big machine. Let's stick to this program for a minute. Yeah. Um, and then when you get to overdubs, it's easier to start experimenting. You know that, you know what the studio studio looks like? Tracking is a lot of wires and mics going on. Mm-hmm. And then you switch gears to overdubs and, and all those mics get moved around and the drum gets that gets halfway yeah. torn down. Yeah. And then you get into this weird zone where you're almost terrified to patch in anything new because you don't want to touch the patch bay. You just yeah. know that that one input goes out to one of those mics out there and let's just kind of use that. Yeah. Um, but those are fun points because you do get into some cool experiments and you try a bunch of stuff and you know, you're willing to hear a mic in the wrong place because it's so easy to do and quick yeah. and you can judge it, you know? Yeah. And I think there's a certain energy that like when a band gets, it's like a show. It's like, you don't want to play two songs and then stop for four hours and go play two more songs. It's like, if you're in a good groove and it's feeling good to track, then keep on tracking. And Yeah, you know, it is like a show. I mean, on the yeah. show itself, how often is the first song of a show just kind of a disaster while the sound man's getting the sound up, right. the band's getting warmed up, yeah. and then three, four songs into it, and somewhere near, you know, before the mm-hmm. the outro, the band is just sounding fantastic. Yeah. The band forgets itself. Yeah. And with those Silver Seas records, because we, we don't play out a lot, we would always before we went into the studio, not only to test the songs out, but we'd do a few gigs before we went into the studio so that we were rehearsed and kind of had worked through how the stuff's going to translate. And And I always think the record's benefited from from that. Anytime we've recorded without that, we've been a little rusty. Yeah. All right, well, um, so, hey, Rockstars, just in case you're hearing, we're, 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 I'm near the door here, so if you hear a couple of trucks and cars go by, that's all, that's all it is. It's not my stomach grumbling. <laughs> Um, let's talk about those moments when you're doing overdubs, maybe you're doing guitar solos or you're doing vocals. What's your approach that you feel like works or what advice would you like to share about how to know that you have gone far enough? Do you go a little further and then call it? Do you stop right at the best take? What, what advice do you have for that? With band takes, I always try to go past it just because how do you know it was the best take if it was the last take? So I'll I'll often ask for one more just to see what happens. And and sometimes we every we were right, that was the one. And sometimes we discover a new thing that is worth digging in, or section is better, and we'll just cut that into the master. Um with vocals, I tend to do a couple of passes of just the singer kind of getting into the song, top to bottom. And then I'll start to offer some advice and and we'll still do whole passes. And once I get this depends on the singer, but generally if you get six or seven takes where the singer is sounding good, maybe even less, maybe four or five, but where it feels great. And then you go in and you might take it section by section. Um, Cause the singer, even though it sounds like they're doing this kind of natural thing, their brains are working really hard up while they're thinking about words and diction and notes and pitch and phrasing. And yeah. there's a lot of, um, you know, I just, liken singers to athletes or like, you know, a gymnast who's, you know, somebody looks like they've just pulled off this flawless stunt off a bar, but there's so much thought and care and caution that goes into 
making that look good. And so um, it's good to give a singer, like, let's just sing this line four or five times and let them really dig into that line. And, and, uh, and so I'll do punch in pass. Well, I'll do whole passes for a while and then we'll do punch in passes of each section. And then at that point, you know, you've got it. It, it's good to kind of like say, now just do one more from the top and don't think about it and just sing it. And, and a lot of times, surprising amount of times, some of the best stuff will be in that last take mm. where they've gone because then this song is so in their skin and they've they've really messed around with it for a couple hours at that point. They'll just go for some things that and and they're also now their head is more into the arc of the song and like, well, chorus three needs to can go here now. It doesn't so you see a lot of that. And I also with solos, I always try to do kind of a similar thing where the first few passes are exploratory and fun and then you might get a little more nitpicky and then go back at the end and just go nuts because yeah. they know it so well at that point. Well, so it's interesting because with vocals, <clears throat> I've noticed that the human voice can evolve in the same way that a tube amp can warm up. Mm-hmm. So you get near the end and the voice is like, it's in this tone now that didn't exist in the first take. Right. Sometimes the first take has got all that breath and air that doesn't exist anymore at the end. Right. But sometimes, you know, the choruses have got sort of a grit and a growl or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever's in there. Um, and then I've also noticed with guitar takes, uh, I remember doing a record with Will Kimbrough and we were doing this solo in one of the songs and we really worked it out. We really had this cool tone and sound and like finally like understood it. But it, but it was like, we were just burning out. And so then I was just like, let's just take a break. You know, and it's like we just stopped and we just took took a break, went head fond, forgot about everything for a while. I don't know how long we took a break for, half an hour or something like that. And then came back and it was like, hey, just do one more pass. And he did, did it and he just nailed it in the first pass. Because, right. I mean, he's a fantastic guitar player too. Yeah. But it yeah, was yeah. like at that point, he just knew what it was, mm-hmm. you know. Well, that's good advice. Well, so now let's, let's shift gears for a sec and um, kind of do some big picture questions. You've done a lot of stuff, Jason. You've grown up in this music. You've uh, had a lot of successful records. Congratulations on your Grammys and your Grammy nomination, too. Thank you. That's pretty awesome. I'm sorry that I had to steal Best Engineer of the Year award from you in 2008. No, <laughs> not really. <laughs> um, but uh, let's humanize it for a little bit and share with the rock stars a story of an important failure for you. You know, maybe there were some a time where wasn't it was wasn't looking so bright and shiny yeah sure i hate this question because i have a an answer to it and uh i hate i hate reliving it because it was so painful but um for you Lidge, well you're welcome man yeah. you're welcome this was uh man this has got to be close to 20 years ago daniel tashin was hosting a thing called 12 at 12th which oh, is yeah. the old 12th and porter and on I guess it was Monday nights, maybe Tuesday nights. I think it was Mondays. And 12 artists would come up. It was 12 artists at 12th and Porter. It was kind of, a, it was kind of an organized open mic. And yeah. Daniel kind of curated it and hosted it. And, and uh, it was a really fun season in Nashville. It was, Nashville was just starting to kind of get its legs in the beginning to be what it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so many talented people were here. And, and it was still really a small community. And um, and the the record industry was sort of shifting gears. From it kind of was, yeah, it was. It was still very focused on, you know, the major labels were still focused on like country acts, but but Lost Highway was really starting to kind of get going and and uh, and doing making some cool records and people like Kim Bowie and 
everybody that were around here. And so there's a lot of good stuff happening. And, uh, and I remember going to, this is the long version of the story, going to 12th and Porter and hearing a voice that just shut everybody in the room up, which also that show was legendary for basically it being a place where people could go and hang out and talk over whoever was playing. And, um, but when Mindy Smith got on the stage and sang, everybody would shut up and listen. And it was beautiful. And, and, uh, and I very quickly kind of made my interest known. It's like, if you ever need help recording anything, please let me know. And so she reached out to me and she had, um, signed a publishing deal and needed some demos. And, and I said, absolutely, let's go, let's go immediately go and do this. So we, we recorded a bunch of things and it was so good. Like she is so good. And, and I was so proud of the work we'd done that, that I um, wrapped it up, finished the project, handed it to members excited. And I, and I backed everything up thinking, you know, it's some, someday soon a record company is going to call me and saying, we just want to buy these masters and put it out. And, and, uh, and I said, and I knew that. And so I very carefully backed everything up and archived it. And I was it was on a radar system at that point. Right, right. And sure enough, three or four months later, Vanguard Records called and said, hey, we, we really love this stuff. We want to just want to buy it. Maybe, maybe we'll remix it or do a couple things. We just want to get, get the tracks from you. And I said, great. And I was so excited because this was going to be a, a shot for me to have a production yeah. opportunity and all this. And so, so I went to recall the backups of it to get it ready to go, and they weren't there. <sighs> um, something had gone wrong. I don't know what, what it was, but when I pulled and you backed up to little eight millimeter tape. Right. And this was not like a pro tools rig where it was just on a hard drive already. This was like, it was in the system while you were working, but then then afterwards you needed to dump it off the system. Right. And then put it back on later if you wanted to keep working on it. Yeah. So I was just, um, I mean, I ended up in therapy over this. It was, it was, it was bad because it was, it was that good. And, and, uh, and it was gone. And, um, and I couldn't find it. I mean, I scoured every, I thought it was, maybe it's on another tape or whatever, but it, it was never, it was, it's lost and gone forever. So I had to call them and say, Hey, I'm, I'm really sorry. I can't, I don't know what happened, but it, it's not here. And, and they said, Oh, that's too bad. And then, uh, Steve Buckingham, who's a wonderful producer and was running Vanguard at the time and who signed Mindy. I hated this, but they basically went into the studio and recut it all. And, oh, wow, yeah. and that's what became her first album. And, uh, and I hated not, I hated that my, it's my fault, you know, got no, nobody to blame but me that I, it didn't, uh, it, that didn't happen. And it's yeah, still, like, I kick myself. Yeah. What a bummer. That's so, rough, man. That's um, really tough. It is tough. So now everything gets backed up twice and, um, delivered. And, and even when I'm, and now it's easier too. Cause like you said, on the radar, you had to back it up at the end of every day. Cause if another project came on, you were going to overwrite that hard drive. And yeah, now you don't have to do that. There's hard drives are big enough now and faster. yet in a way now it's easier to accidentally lose something because people might have just assumed that everything's there and it's all safe. It's yeah. easier to just feel like oh everything's probably cool. Yeah. When in fact you do need to put in a lot of extra effort. You have yeah. to be very intentional. You want to talk about some good backup strategies now for people? Yeah. Now now what I do is I have um those hot swap SATA uh things. And I'll just buy, I mean, a terabyte is like 80 bucks. And so I'll buy two terabyte drives and I have, you know, I think I'm on work seven now. So I have work seven master and work seven backup. At the end of every day, I use synchronized pro and run a backup of, of that drive, whatever happened that day. And when the drives are full, I put them away 
and and get two new drives. So I'm never overwriting anything. Um, and I never work on client drives. If somebody brings me something, I copy it to my drives. Yeah. And at the end of a project, if they need it back, I'll archive it back to their drives. But, and this is funny because record companies make you sign agreements that saying that you won't keep anything that you've worked on. Which is probably really dumb because they probably really need you to keep it. They do. It. And, and, and also three months after the record's done and they need a different version of something, they never go to their files for right. it. They call you and say, hey, can you get us this? And, right. and because I do keep it, I'm able to turn it around. So Yeah, I do the same thing. It took me a few um, mistakes to learn this lesson. But I'll do a work drive and, and then I'll have a backup drive for while I'm working on it. And then I'll, I'll have separate archive drives, master and, and archive backup. Yeah. And I'll just move it over to those drives. It gets a little tricky, I find, sometimes when you when it's time to move it back on and work on it some more and then put it back again. You're like, I don't know where to put stuff. So yeah. I, what sort of, I, do I think for I default is, to just having it be redundant, just too many versions. Yeah. Well, I I've when I'm starting a new drive, yeah, I this, always the sirens going by yeah, appropriately right yeah. at this discussion. <laughs> it's funny. When I'm opening a new drive, there's always about 100 gigs worth of stuff on the old drive that I end up copying over because I'm either still working on it or I'm going to need need it later or if there's something that's unfinished or if I'm working with that artist a year later and there was a song from a previous record that we didn't use, they're like, let's use that. Rather than go back to that old drive and work there, I just copy it into the new drive. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there is some redundancy. Um, any good tricks or tips for how to keep uh, like a sort of a library list of where you would go find particular projects on old drives? Yeah, I'd, it's somewhat effective because a, a terabyte's not that much space. Um, I'll just print out a, at the when a drive is full, I'll print out a screenshot oh, of smart. the folders on it and just store it with the drive so I can real quickly look at just look at that and see if the artist's name is. Very smart. That's there. a great tip. I like that a um, lot, man. Good. I'm glad I asked. That's, yeah, I that's like, the quickest I really way. Like, I love simple solutions. Yeah, I think I got that idea from Conrad Snyder, maybe. I saw him do that. I was like, that's just a brilliant, simple way to know what's yeah. on there. Yeah. You just glance at a piece of paper that's with the drive, and yeah. you can see all the folders of different artist names on there. Yeah. And then I guess when you change that drive, if you do change it, you just change the printout, swap it out or something. Yeah, well, I never make that printout until the drive is full, and I'm not going to touch it again. Yeah, right? yeah. Groovy. All right. Well, so now how about um, sort of an aha moment for you in the, along the way of recording something where, um, I don't know, just just something brilliantly clicked for you in, in your recording career? Um, I would say that for me, that's the making of Victor Krause's um, second album, which is the one that where I was nominated for a Best Engineer Grammy. Oh, cool. Um, cool. And I just remember everything about that lined up you know we had incredible musicians and and incredible studios and uh and i remember even what i think the aha moment of it was after all that and being as proud of it as i was i still wasn't sure about it and greg calby was was mastering it and i wasn't at i don't think i wasn't at that session and and i called greg before and said man if you hear anything that needs to be changing or i'd love your opinion like what you think about it and he said, sure. And he called me back and said, you know, it sounded fine. It was no, no problem. E easy peasy and nice. done. And then it was nominated for this Grammy. And so for me, it was like, okay, that's, I guess that was good enough. And so it, for me, it was a good way to set a bar for myself and, and, to, and just to also really appreciate how much about that record sounding great didn't have to do with the engineer. 
meaning me. I mean, Great musicians on that. Was that about the same time you were doing Jack Silverman's record? I remember hearing that one, one of the records you did with I him. I think that was right it. after Jack's so good, record. Yeah, yeah. same producer, song. Victor Krauss, yeah. also um, produced Jack's record and played on it. And Victor's Victor is, a great guy. He's a brilliant dude. He's such a good arranger. And that's that's one thing that I learned about, like, really well-arranged albums are really fun and easy to mix because you're not trying to make room. You're not taking a frequency out of one instrument to make room for another one. Yeah, It's like this tapestry that, fits together and you know mixing is 50% problem solving and 50% creativity and exciting and hype what's the other stuff? 50% <laughs> <laughs> luck <laughs> losing yeah luck and so and with a victor record and every i just mixed a thing for him a few months ago and it's the same deal where it's like you're never fixing anything it's just so you put 100% of your energy into just making it sound fun and great and large and yeah, that's um, and cool. that was Matt Chamberlain playing drums, Dean Parks on guitar, and Victor on bass. And we tracked it as a trio, and then Victor added some things at home. And So um, yeah. if you don't mind, let's dig in a little bit. I think I remember you telling stories about working with Matt Chamberlain, maybe, I don't know if it was the first time, but didn't you say that he was sort of like breaking out an extra 57 and he'd have Ableton Live going so he could like create mm -hmm. like sketch pads of loops really quickly? Yeah, he'll make loops kind of on the fly and or if you've got some pedals around or he'll bring pedals and he's got a lot of those little, uh, copper contact mics that you just tape on to things and he'll use that to build loops and all the loops on Victor, on that Victor record. I'll make sure that's one of the links that you. Okay. Have, great. Um, or Matt just messing around before we get going. Um, um so rock stars, as I always say, I'll have links to stuff we talk about in the show notes. So um, Jason's going to share some YouTube clips. So we'll have some stuff in, in Spotify. If you just want to click through and hear some of his records, it'll be in the notes too. What advice do you have for anybody who hears the idea of making loops with a drummer and goes, oh, that's really cool. I, want, I should try something like that. What tips do you have for, for them about how you kind of effectively set that up on a session so that you're doing your tracking and you're also creating little loop ideas and it's not getting in the way of each other? For the drummer to do that or for the You tell engineer? me, does the drummer have to do it? Do you do that well, also Well, I mean, engineer? the reason that Matt was able to be so um, fast with that is that he's got a, he was running Ableton and he had a little Mark of the Unicorn interface and Matt's a really good engineer. And and so he, by the time that the people in the control room were halfway through the demo, Matt's already out of the drum kit messing around with stuff. And so, and he's doing it in headphones and he'll, with an extra mic on hand and so he just gives it to you and then you'll just have a couple of lines that are coming coming off of his laptop that you can run alongside and he drives the click himself so you're you're getting that info from him just as if it's another instrument or a keyboard sitting next to his rig so that's cool so he has sort of like this little laptop rig right yeah, next to him so that's super i mean that that's as easy as it gets a kind of in between version of that is uh you'll just you know, like I work with uh, Fred Eltringham a lot. He's a local yeah, Fred's drummer. awesome. Man. He's, He's an incredible musician, and and he'll he'll have a little percussion station right next to his drums, and we'll just have a few extra mics that they kind of move around based on what he's how he sets that up because it's always changing. But we'll often make a loop before we start the song, where he'll we'll just find the tempo, and then he'll play a few bars of that, and then you just build it, and that takes three minutes to you know to create that, and then that kind of either replaces or works with the click track to be, and it, and it kind of finds its way into the, into the mix, you know, in a way that's healthy. So that, that's a 
another good way to do it. So you start out, you're the engineer, he's playing, you're recording him through the same mics you might be recording the drums through, maybe a couple of extra weird ones if yeah. you want or something. Yeah, or or we only, only the mics that we need. And we'll just, you know, if you're in a Pro Tool session, it's really easy just to duplicate the five or so mics that might the loop might be sounding good on, duplicate those, group them, and then they're their own thing. And then you can just route them out whatever output yeah. is going to be, you know, treat it like the loop. And it's, that's an easy way to kind of create that. How often do you find it's valuable to send the band um, something that's an actual organic loop as opposed to a click that goes beep, 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 you know? Yeah. I think, yeah, I think a lot of musicians um, benefit from having a an organic loop as opposed to, a, you know, a knitting needle stabbing them in the ear <laughs> every quarter note. I do. And I think that a loop can bring a lot of cool subtlety to the groove and influence how everybody plays around it. And it frees the drummer up to play around the groove instead of, you know, be the groove all the time. Yeah. yeah. It shows you different parts of the pocket where it can all fit together. Mm -hmm. um, I really enjoy doing that stuff. I can't say I've been doing that as much recently, but I think I still do it. I think I still do it. I probably got more comfortable with a click track myself, so I would be less inclined to feel like I needed it, but maybe I do need it when yeah. I'm playing on something, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Maybe I need a producer to tell me that I really would be playing better if I was playing to a loop. <laughs> um, all right, so now let's dig into some, a few more questions here. Let's talk a little bit about starting your own career in recording. You know, we, we heard about you growing up with this, starting to do some band stuff. What were some of the early struggles for you about just kind of getting your own recording and producing career off the ground? What are some classic things that maybe other people run into too? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's... Because I grew up in it, there's no question that I had a leg up. I um, I had relationships with studios. In some ways, the the part of like going from internship to assistant engineer is a phase that I got to do at my dad's studio. So, which I'm grateful for, and I you know I, I didn't have to fight as hard as some people do to to get that opportunity. But moving from assisting to being a first engineer, that opportunity was not as available and because you there's too much money at stake for somebody to do somebody a favor you know yeah so i i assisted a lot and i got a lot of good training as an assistant and and i didn't assist at any one place i would kind of hop around and and that was good training because i got to know a lot of different rooms and different engineers too. different engineers and what was really good for me was that i got i had relationships with all the studio managers that so i could I could get a favor, you know, it's Saturday night and the studio's not booked until Monday afternoon and I've got a band that I want to record. Can you hook me up? And they'd be like, totally just, here's the key, go have fun. And, and so those were some great opportunities that by being an assistant and moving around a lot that I got to take advantage of. And that's, and really those days, and, and assisting it was a great way to to learn. I mean, you have to get really fast and be attentive and you have to understand all the inner workings of how the room works. And so it was good training for being a first engineer. And and then I guess the challenge was just, I noticed myself being less interested in assisting. And and I thought, well, before I start just dropping the ball and not being good at it anymore, it's maybe it's time to stop. And I can't remember, I wish I could remember who advised me of this, but they said, don't, don't ease out of it. Just stop and tell when people call you for assisting, just tell them you're not doing it anymore and you're firsting now. Interesting. And, yeah. uh, and, um, 
So that must have been a risky transition too. It was, and yeah, income. and I was living with my girlfriend, who's now my wife, who totally floated me through that period because everything dry. I spent probably four months, you know, telling people, "Nope, <laughs> I don't do that," and and them not saying, "Well, come in first, engineer." And gradually, you start to get, you know, an overdub gig, or you know, and somebody needed you to punch vocals on a thing, and yeah, um, you know, and there was a lot less of these days. I think that kind of overdub work is less common because the producers are doing that themselves. Right. Um, but I think a great takeaway though, is that, you know, you discovered the power of saying no, which applies to everybody and it's really valuable. And the only way you could open up opportunity to do the thing you needed to do next was to start saying no to something else. Yeah. And I think another great takeaway is that Saying no was it wasn't like you said no and then next week it was like here's a million dollars to come make this record. It was like right. you said no and you had to you know stay through four months of of nothing. Yeah, you know, um, probably a lot of people looking at you like, what are you doing, dude? Yeah, well, and in the big picture, four months is not that much time. E well, when e you're younger, it is. Yeah, um, it feels like it. Yeah, when your girlfriend's floating you, it sure yeah, feels it like it. <laughs> it was long to her. Yeah, so it, yeah, it was. It was that, and then all the other. The flip side of that is when you do start working more as a first, then you're usually getting paid more, and and so it kind of balances out. And really, the thing that that I loved, I wish I I wish people still called me to do this, was publishing demos. And then there's not really any other place in the world where it happens like this, but in Nashville, all the music publishing companies are getting demos cut of the songs their writers have turned in. You know, in a three hour session, you'll cut record five songs yeah, and it's a full band and there's no time to mess around and you have to go in and knock it out. And those sessions are so much fun because you have to go so fast. They and keep you awake and on your toes. They do. And it's just great training. And there's a, because of that um, urgency, there's a real, there's a real joyful kind of uh, rambunctiousness to the the band. Everybody's moving quick. And, a, and an idea that doesn't work a hundred percent is immediately just, nope, no time for that next. Right, and, right. and so, some cool things come out of that, you know, having kind of speed, speed dating with a song, you know, <laughs> um, it, it's really fun work and, uh, and it's really great training for an engineer just because you, you get really quick at it's some of my writing. favorite stuff. I don't do the publishing demos so much, but working with independent artists, if I'm recording with them, mm -hmm. you know, it's the same thing. Cause like yeah. we've got our day in the studio and we need to record seven songs mm -hmm. or something. And I love the efficiency of the process of having, you know, a drummer come in, drop their drums off the night before if we can. Mm -hmm. I, I love to have a band in the studio and say, we're starting at 10 a.m. And by 11 a.m., we're, we're downbeat. And he, that would be slow for a demo session. You'd have to be, you'd have five minutes to, yeah. to do downbeat. Yeah, you have two songs done by 11. But having, yeah, having yeah. a band come in for a full day, an indie band, it's still like just that challenge of saying we're going to be so efficient, we're going to get right to the point and, yeah. and work quickly on this stuff is fun for me. It really does yeah. keep you awake, keeps you, you know, feeling like you're, you're doing something. Yeah. I think your Bonnaroo sessions too would probably feel a lot like that. Where you're They just... do. They do. By about day four, I'm sort of exhausted. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. Rockstars, you probably heard it before, but my Bonnaroo sessions, the Hay Bale Studio, we will, our target would be 40 bands in four days. So a band comes in every hour and uh, records, we've set them up, they record three songs, they mix it live in headphones while they're performing. So no, no sound check even. It's just like first time I hear the song is the first time I'm is when I'm mixing it. 
And you're printing and it down to two track, right? Print it down to two track. Are you yeah. also catching the multi track? We catch it? it to multi track, and and I have gone back and remixed multi track before, and it did it did save you know a song, it right. improved it because I fucked up the vocal level in the live mix, <laughs> but right. you know, and then we master it, and it goes out on radio and stuff. That's but awesome. yeah, it is the speed of it is is pretty um, it's intoxicating. You know? Yeah. All right, so now let's talk about this studio. You know, your studio. You've you've had. Um, Give us a, like a quick rundown of the evolution of different studios you've had and, and where you are now. Where I am now is a really um, good hybrid of my my past. I mean, I um, one of the downfalls of growing up around studios and and especially really professional studios was the idea that you had to have this kind of perfect setup in order to invite great music to happen. And uh, and early on, I was. Um, really distracted by that. And it definitely held me back. And, it, and inevitably at a certain point in your career, you will find yourself in a position where you don't have the perfect setup and you've got to deal with it and make something good. And, and so through that, I was really able to learn more about that. You know, if, if I sound like anything, it's not the equipment. It's, I sound, just sound like me. Sound goes in my ears a certain way and I want to make it sound a certain way. And so if I'm working on a Neve and an SSL, it's not going to sound that much different than if I were mixing on a Mackie. Mm-hmm. You know, it might be easier on the Neve SSL, but in terms of like the frequencies I want to hear. Not if you're trying to get that Mackie sound. Yeah, that Mackie's got that <laughs> sweet spot. It's the off position. That's terrible. You have to cut <laughs> Poor Mackie. But by the way, I'm monitoring through a Mackie big knob. So yeah. there you go. Uh, anyway, so there was a lot of that, and I learned, you know, early on that it, an SM57 and a great singer and a great song is really all you need. And the best mic on the best singer singing a shitty song is still going to sound like a shitty song. Right, right. And, uh, you know, moving up around studios and then working, and more and more as technology allowed studios to move into homes, dealing with that has, you know, learned a lot about what I like to hear and what a room you take, you go into a professional studio and you kind of take the design for granted. It just sounds good. right. Um, and before I moved into this room, I had been working in, uh, a guest house that's behind my dad's house, which, where we shared a studio I that one, yeah. and he's got a converted garage. That's, that is a really nice space, really good mixing space and overdub space. And in the guest house, there was a bedroom that I was, I had, I had a room on music row and was working at his place when I could. And at a certain point I was making a record in his studio and I needed an editor to be working in, in, at, in the guest house. And so I brought my Pro Tools rig over to the guest house and we started editing and stuff. And, and at a certain point I was working over there and renting that room more than I was using my space on music row. It was just storage at that point. So I just moved out of there and, and moved in full time into this guest bedroom behind my dad's house. And it was literally one of those like bedroom closets with accordion doors on it that yeah. would open up. And we just took the doors off of it and pushed the Pro Tools rig into the closet. And that was, <laughs> that was the control room. That was your studio. And it was, and so I was using that for like editing and, you know, vocal tuning, really light, like not audio sensitive tasks. And, yeah. um, but I was doing more and more work in there. And, and at a certain point I built a booth into the corner so we could cut vocals in there. And so then now I'm doing vocals and editing and now I'm doing more like programming and playing on stuff and more and more I'm in this space. And then, but I was still going into the other proper room to mix 
And there was a project when I couldn't get into the the good mix room and I had to mix it on my system in the in the closet. And I did it and I worked and I would mix for a while, take it out to the car, listen out there, take it home, you know, just and play with it. And I and I got the mix where I thought it was pretty good. And we wrapped up the project and I thought, well, I'm gonna go in the proper room now with it and see if I can beat this mix and make it any better. And I pulled it up in the other room and it sounded really good. I made a couple changes, but then took it home and I didn't like it any better. And so from that point on, I thought, all right, well, I'm just going to commit to mixing in the box, in the closet. And, and, that, <laughs> and I like it. We all know about mixing in the box, but mixing yeah. in the closet, nobody ever yeah. talks about that. Yeah. So, and it started working and it took me, you know, it took a lot of work for me to learn what good sounded like in that space. And I don't think many other people coming over there enjoyed it because it was, you know, it wasn't, I mean, there was no treatment on the walls. It, it, it was, it shouldn't have worked, but it did. And, um, what are some of the things that you remember <clears throat> coming to terms with about how to make a mix sound good in the box in a crappy space, big speakers, small speakers, these midsize ATCs, which are like what, eight inch maybe. Um, under, I mean, low end is always the thing that to me is, a uh, in, is net, you know, what's the word? Elusive. Yeah. Um, or it's easy to screw up too. Yeah. And so I was always, um, finding myself having to go to the car to reference the bottom end and then come back and, yeah. and, and well, deal with that. But why do you think the car lets us know what the low end is doing? I mean, we all know it does. It doesn't, but I listen to most music in the car. Is that so, all it is? So I'm so used to what it's supposed to sound like. And I think anybody has, for me, it's the car for anybody, they've got their place where they're listening to stuff where they're not thinking about it. It's just, um, you're just experiencing the music. And yeah. so I think putting something you're, you're so focused on in that environment allows you to zoom out enough to make some quick decisions about, oh, the bass is too loud. Yeah, there are also times, I guess it could be that, and there are also just, you know, you hear a mix you're doing in some environments and it's just immediately evident to you that something is out of balance. Yeah. It's weird like that. Yeah. I don't know why. I mean, I got this... Bose Mini Sound Leak, this Bluetooth speaker. I got one for the studio because this is what I listen to music on at home. And it's it's amazingly uh, telling, you know, yeah. and it's real consumer-y kind of audio in a, in a way and so that... So how do you get the music to that guy? What's your way, way of doing it's that just a, There's a mini plug input. You could Bluetooth to it, but I just go in the audio jack. Okay, all right, all right. And so I just have it set up like a, another speaker. Uh, off of my master section. That's cool. Yeah, I've got a couple of uh, Bluetooth speakers and I've I messed with the other Bose desktop speakers before mm -hmm. in the studio. It's funny that my Bose desktop speakers were very telling when I would take my mix back up to the house to mm -hmm. my to the same desk I would pay my bills on, you know. Right. But when I put them on the control room desk on the on the uh, console in the studio, I couldn't really tell. Yeah. I mean, maybe I could, but it wasn't quite the same for some reason. It's yeah. weird. Sometimes you just have to leave your control room. Yeah. I think there's something to having it off to the side too. And not, yeah. you know, there's such an official business kind of sense about sitting between a pair of speakers and yeah. that it's nice to kind of get away from that. Um, but this room is, you know, it's a converted house, but it's that we did do some work on designing the space and treating it. And, uh, and it's definitely more comfortable than the closet was. Yeah, and talk the, a little bit about your designer. Um, Gary Hedden did this room, and uh, and he's done a great job. I mean, it's a it's a fourteen foot square with ten foot ceilings, and um, which is not easy to deal with. You know, just being a square room, right? Square is like um, the that's like not what you want to start mm -mm. with. And uh, 
but he's done a good job. It's not, it's dead enough. It's not too dead, which I like. Um, he's got, he's built a soffit around the edges of the ceiling. That's about eight inches tall and a couple feet deep. And so, yeah, my first thought was that the soffit was going to be the HVAC, but it's not right. It's just sound trapping. Yeah. And there's some 703 inside it and then it's hollow inside that, I think. Um, and then there are a couple of corner traps that are like cylindrical shape that, you know, that fill in the corners. And so the the um, surface is sort of curved and it it is a little bit hard so that it diffuses the sound reflecting back. It off is. Them. I think they're using um, pegboards. So some of the sound goes through and some is diffused back out. And inside there's um, insulation to hold hold back the base. And then there's a cloud overhead that's similar design to the corner traps where it's a curved surface um, with insulation above. And so it's a real diffuse room and and it's really even. That's what I like about it. Did you have to stress a lot over the HVAC to make sure it was quiet enough? Um, A little bit. We, um, the system is, it's a new system and we were able to move the air handler all the way to the back of the house. And uh, which is as, as far as you can get from the room we're in now. And uh, that was an important thing. And it's a zone system so that this room is, it's one unit, but it does have some zoning capabilities. So this room is right. on a separate thermostat from the rest of the house. And that's important, Rockstars, because if you're sealing off rooms from one another in your studio, then you typically there's a thermostat in just one of those spaces. So if, it, if one room gets warm, it's going to try and cool down all the rooms. So if you've yeah. got a zone system, it's like, the control room will get a different treatment than the tracking room that's got a drummer heating it up, you know? Yeah. And it's, you know, I generally, I, it's all kind of pretty even and I'm not asking it to do a lot from one room to the next. Um, yeah, we, it's, it's working pretty well though. The, the system, I mean, it's really efficient and especially this time of year right now, it's kind of not yeah, having to perfect. be on. You yeah. don't have to do anything right yeah. now, right? Cool. Um, well, uh, how are you doing on time? Okay. I'm good. Yeah. Okay. Groovy. Uh, well, let me see. I might ask you one more question and we'll take a break and come in for the jam session. Um, I got a bunch of questions. So let me just ask you, let's dig into a record. As I was flipping through, I was listening to Aubrey Sellers and the guitar sound on that was big and beautiful. And then the drums came in and I was like, how do you get drums to sound like that? You want to tell that story? I mean, Rockstars, you'll be able to click through and reference this in the show notes too. Um, Sure. That, that is, I, I mixed that record. I didn't track it. Um, so part of, part of getting the drums to sound like that is having Chuck Anlay and Brandon Schexnader track the drums. It's Fred Altringham playing them. Um, Adam Wright is playing, uh, most of the guitars and, uh, I oh mean, I'm, I'm spacing on the other guitar player's name. He, he plays with, um, Kings of Leon well, I remember listening to the clip on YouTube and, you know, it starts out with this one big wide sort of tremolo yeah. reverberant guitar and then the drums come in and uh, it just, the drums are powerful, but they're crisp and they just have this focus to them. Do you remember some of the things that you did mixing the drums on that at all? Yeah. I mean, or, it came or some in, things you might typically do mixing drums? Yeah. I do have a kind of a go-to template that I start with and then make adjustments. I can think of no better place than this podcast for people who are dying to hear about it. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, because I was trying to tell my wife about it last night. She's <laughs> not interested. Yeah, you, you found the right crowd. Yeah. Um, the uh, yeah, I have a basic mix template that I start with, and and it's um, and it generally revolves around a lot. There's I use a lot of parallel compression. There's very rarely a compressor that's directly on the source, um, and there's always a parallel aux that has a compressor on it, and depending on the instrument, that compressor can change. Um, and then I have a few, and then there's a master section thing, which I really change depending on the record. And so um, that record was similar to any record I would get. And I think a lot of what, again, it that album is so well arranged mm -hmm. that mixing it was really just about turning up the right stuff at the right time. And, uh, well, I I can guarantee you, I know how to also turn up the wrong stuff at the wrong yeah. time, and, <laughs> and probably come up with a quite a different mix. Um, the uh, <laughs> one thing I love about that album is, and it took me a few songs in to notice it, but the bass usually doesn't even enter the song until the second verse. Right, I think um, the drums came in against the guitar. Yeah, first. and it'll be drums and guitar for definitely until the first chorus, and often even through the first chorus, and the bass, and that, and they were really able to keep the instrumentation down by using the bass as part of a building thing instead of this foundational thing. I've, I've used that and, trick in arrangement of one song for a band called The Living Things that I was producing. Uh -huh. And it was remarkable. It really did kind of rescue the yeah. arrangement on this song just by waiting for the bass till the second verse. Yeah, it can really lift things. Um, and, uh, you know, and Aubrey sings so great. It, so it was really just getting that balance between the guitars and the parallel compression I really like because it doesn't squash the source. It doesn't, but all this tone and sustain that you want out of a compressor can happen on the parallel bus. So we're talking drums here for a minute. So yeah, parallel compression, um, would, would a kick get some parallel compression? Yeah, what I do is I'll set, I'll have all the individual drums and they go either to a drum stereo aux or maybe directly to the master fader. And then I'll have a stereo aux that's that I call drum compression, and uh, and it's goofy, but it, I I use the BF seventy six compressor. Nice, I it's, love hearing stories yeah, like that. It, Matt Mahaffey was just on the show too. He it, uh, also swears by the BF eleven seventy six. I use it all the time, and I and because it's probably because it doesn't sound because it's crunchy, right? Yeah, and I, and I when I'm using it as a parallel compressor, I make the attack and release all the way fast. Okay, cool. And I so hit it hard. So you don't want the drums to sneak through. I don't, you don't want the, the transients. Attack to sneak I want all transients. sustain and and tone and decay in that channel. Um, and so I'll mix the drums and then and what I do with that aux is I'll set up a prefader send. Um because just sending them directly to it, you always end up with more kick drum than you want. Right, right. So Probably more symbols than you want to. Yeah, I don't even send. That's what, that's the other reason I'll do a prefader aux is that I'll just send the shells, basically kick, snare, and toms, and they'll go prefader, and so I can balance exactly how much of the compressor I want them hitting it, and then and then blend that parallel, the output of that parallel compressor up into the drum mix, mm -hmm. um, and then sometimes I'll add the rooms into that if you want more room without more transient. That's right. the thing. It's like, if you want the decay of a room mic, then send that, add that into the parallel compressor, as long as the symbols aren't getting out of hand. 
Okay. Um, and then um, might you do some other like individual parallel compression stuff to just the snare, for example? I don't. I, I'll, um, I will sometimes later in the mix go back and add some compression directly to the snare just mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah. Um, but no, my par- I only have one drum parallel compressor and I, and I just find a balance that works. Um, do you imagine that when Chuck Ainley was tracking those drums that he might have been using some compression in the tracking stage? Yeah, you can hear a little bit. Um, the thing that blew me away about his tracks were the bass um, was really fun to work with. And yeah. it's Glenn Wharf. And they would they were running a Baseman amp and um, an Ampeg flip top. I don't know if it was a B15 or 12, but but there were two separate amps and a DI. And I don't know how he was doing it, but the phase correlation... I was just about to ask that. ...was so good. So you and, just pull it up and it sounds Yeah, because right. normally you're going around chasing around waveforms to line them up and yeah. get them in phase. And and this was... I called him and asked him, I was like, did you, did you do any... How'd you do this? And he's like, I don't know. Maybe I was... Maybe we moved it. I can't remember. <laughs> but it yeah, it was really amazing. And it And it was... And all three of those sounds were so well dialed that they... You know, it wasn't like you wanted to turn one down or the other up. It was like it was just this beautiful blend of the three, and um, so that that was really fun to work with. And yeah. again, like you, when you get great tracks, mixing is so much fun. Well, so let's talk about bass tracks that show up that aren't so great. What are some first moves that you would do to try and get them in phase? Um, I will measure visually, look at the DI and the amp, and. And invariably, the amp is always behind the DI because the DI is traveling at the speed of light, and the amp is delayed by the distance from. I know the... some bass players that don't travel at the speed <laughs> of light. <dude. laughs> They've got their DIs to help them out. Uh, the bass is delayed by the distance from the speaker to the microphone, and so, so the often the bass amp track is a hundred or so samples behind and 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 I'll literally look at the waveforms find a common peak and measure the distance in samples and then the I don't move the waveforms what I do is I in the delay compensation engine in pro tools enter a negative uh amount to on the amp track oh interesting move them forward which moves the amp forward you you would say uh, the thinking behind that is that when the bass player played that note at that time we we got it right away on the DI, and that was what he intended. Yeah, I, I let the, I consider that the DI is the intended location. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Um, and a lot of bass players, even though they give you an amp, like to monitor their DI a little hotter because it's clearer. Okay, so two geeky quick questions. Um, you you threw out a hundred samples could be the offset for the bass amp. Mm-hmm. Um, what's what might be the sample rate of that session? And how far away do you think the mic was set in front of the amp for that to be a typical scenario? Usually when I'm, it's usually 48K, 44-148. And I mean, when I'm recording a bass amp, the mic is, um, you know, six to eight inches off the cone. Okay, maybe. right, right. Um, so, yeah, I don't know what that turns out to in time. Interesting question, though, because sampling rate, Right, because if you're recording at yeah. double the sampling rate, it's going to be 200 samples yeah. delay instead yeah. of 100. Something to pay attention to, Rockstar. Yeah. Don't pay too much yeah. attention to it because you're supposed to be using your ears. Yeah, but, but I'll tell you, when you get it right, 
and the difference that it makes is um, unbelievably. Yeah. Like all of a sudden the whole base comes into focus. And when you, yeah, and don't be afraid to flip the phase, the flip the polarity yeah. too. And sometimes to that's it. required is to, you get part of, you know, tracking is like, well, and we play with phase while we're tracking it and you get as close as you can. But sometimes the problem isn't a 180 degree phase flip. It's a timing difference. Yeah. Between the two sources. Yeah. Um, all right, Groovy. Well, let's take a break here um, and then we'll come back in for the jam session. Rockstars, before we go, I'm just going to remind you, you can find show notes to what we're talking about here with Jason at rsrockstars.com and then use the magnifying glass to search for Jason Lenning. That's L-E-H-N-I-N-G. But Jason will probably take you there pretty quickly too. <laughs> um, if you uh, are digging the music in the top of this podcast, a little pitch for that, you can go check that out at skadooshmusic.com. That's S-K-A double O. Uh, I'm not even spelling it right. S K A D O S H music.com. And that's, that's my music. That's the the podcast theme song. And if you want to get yourself a cool t-shirt just to let the world know that you're a rock star too, you can find that at rsrockstars.com slash t-shirt. Anything else I should add? <laughs> Sounds awesome. Jason's looking at me. He's like, nice dude. Yeah. Nice plug, man. Yeah, it's good. All right, Groovy Rockstars, we'll see you guys in a minute for the jam session. Cheers. Hey, everybody, it's Lid Shaw, and I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of Recording Studio Rockstars. I really appreciate you, and I really appreciate your time. And as a way of saying thank you, I've created a special mix tutorial just for you, Rockstars, totally free, called the Mix Master Bundle. With it, you get over two hours of detailed videos watching over my shoulder as I mix a song in my studio. Plus, I give you the free ebook that explains how I recorded the tracks, and you get downloadable multi tracks so that you can practice your mixes, including the Pro Tools session file, using nothing but stock plugins in Pro Tools, all of which you would find in any other DAW, whether you're on Logic or Studio One or Reaper. Maybe you're struggling with trying to improve your mix technique, or maybe you just simply don't have access to multi track files or can't record a full drum set in your studio. I wanted to give you a chance to create your own mixes from full drum drum kit, bass, and guitars recorded in my studio. The song is called American Winter, and it's off my instrumental record, Skadoosh, and it's all available for you totally free right now. All you need to do to get it is text Mix Master Bundle to 33444, and I'll send it directly to your email. Again, that's Mix Master Bundle with no space to 33444, or you can go directly to MixMasterBundle.com, enter your email, and I'll send all the files directly to you. Thanks so much, Rockstars. We'll see you guys in the jam session. Cheers. Hey, Rockstars, welcome back. We're going to jump into the jam session. My guest today is Jason Lenning. And we are joining you from his studio, The Drones Club, right here in Nashville, Tennessee. Jason, are you ready to jam? Let's jam. All right, dude. When you were starting out and recording, what was holding you back? Um, well, I think like I spoke about this earlier, about just feeling like um, you had to have great equipment and and the perfect environment um, for something good to happen. And as I And I started early, so it was, you know, this is as a teenager. But as I started playing around with it and also listen, my favorite records sound like shit, you know? Um, so there's some early Pixies records that really from an audio standpoint 
or terrible, but totally, but, but from an emotional standpoint are great audio because they connect. And I think when you talk about good audio, that to me means what's the shortest distance from artist's brain to a listener's heart. The, a good engineer is a person who can shorten that distance. And, uh, and sometimes that means doing nothing. And sometimes it means doing a lot, but creating that pathway for the intention of the music is that's good recording. Now are you yeah. sure it's from the artist's brain to the listener's heart. It's not from the artist's heart to the listener's heart. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it is. That's a great quote though, man. I love the way you just said that. That's brilliant. And by the way, I think you might enjoy this, that, um, your episode will hopefully be somewhat closely followed by Steve Albini's episode. Oh, sweet. So I just asked yeah. him to be on the show. He's made some of my show. favorite shitty sounding exactly. records. Exactly. <laughs> on the Pixies, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, all right. So now how about some of the best advice you received um, or remember receiving? I mean, you've already shared some really good stuff. Got any other good advice for recording, studio, career? Um, know, man, I think the, Don't fuck it up kind of advice, yeah, whatever. The, I think the best advice I've ever gotten, which I still use to this day, is to anytime you can be in record, be in record. As soon as the band is walking into the room, put the tape machine or approach or whatever in, in the red, even if you're filling up gigabytes upon gigabytes of qu- noise or whatever, somebody will say something or do something and, and you'll wish you had it. And, yeah. uh, well, Chateau Revenge had some great little like tape yeah, start clips that totally. turned into, you know, part of the arrangement of the song. Yeah. And then also I noticed earlier, uh, I couldn't help noticing when you mentioned that a terabyte drive was not that big. I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> but it's, you know, you're probably being really liberal with capturing audio. You yeah. Know? And when you think about if a terabyte costs $80. No, no, it's not that big a price for sure. It's not, yeah, and it's so. not that big of a, yeah, I guess price per per bit is a, yeah, it's just not, it's fill it up. Data it storage up. is cheap. And uh, yeah, and you'll catch something. And especially also with like, Overdub musicians, I think, you know, which you don't see a whole lot of, but like, because there's some musicians who will play their most brilliant thing, the first thing they play, and they'll never play it again. They, they'll, they'll forget what they did, or they won't, they'll start overthinking it too fast. And so the second somebody sits down to start playing with an idea, if you're doing a guitar solo or whatever, just be in record from the get go. Um, I was talking about my record when I would do overdubs. I, that was when I had to do a million takes. I'd, I think for every guitar overdub I did on my record, I did at least 25 takes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know how I would have done I'm recording it myself, too. I don't know how I would have done it if I couldn't have just done playlists and label it and then yeah. come back to kind of like sort through it afterwards. Yeah. I've really gotten into loop record when I'm overdubbing myself in Pro Tools. And it's, you know, it fills up a lot of, there's a lot of nonsense, but it's a fun way to like, kind of zone into the groove and not think about engineering for let's dig into that for just one sec so what version of pro tools are you using i'm still on um, like 10 and million. how do you uh, do you want to sort of explain how loop record works or how you might use it pro tools 10 and loop record on this system you just select the range that you want to be in record and you can set it up to make a new playlist for every time the loop starts over so if i'm playing bass on something that i'm working on or or guitar, and sometimes it you'll find it takes three or four passes through that section to really find the part, you know, and then another three or four to execute it in a way that you're happy with. And so I can just do that. And once I know I've got what I need, I put the bass down and then go comp together 
Yeah. That the instead of like constantly between the instrument and the mouse, you know, oh, we're gonna punch this bar or right. not, or start o- stopping and starting over. It just kind of lets the computer go into autopilot, so you can just be a musician. I'm with you on that. When I'm recording myself, I have a tendency to not want to sort of pre-mark a punch in, punch out point. That that I know that. DAWs talk about that feature a lot, like that's like a proud feature. Mm-hmm. But for me, that always feels like, wait a minute, you're asking me to switch my engineer brain back on again? I don't want to do that. Yeah. I want to stay in music brain right now. Yeah. So I actually do it more like you do it and just yeah. do it. Also, you talked about sort of knowing when you've got it. I think that's a thing that comes with experience in the studio. You know, the producers, we, we have a, uh, that's our sixth sense, right? Mm-hmm. Is you've just mm-hmm. got this sense, you've done a, 20 vocal takes or yeah. something like that. And you just sort of know that you've got it. Yeah. I think something I've discovered too with younger artists is that there's less, um, what's the right way to say this? I can hear a an unfinished record and know if it's can be, if we're close or not. And a lot of young artists really like, have to hear it pretty close to done right. before they start to settle down. And, and, and I think it just comes from, you know, when you came up when you couldn't mix the record while you were tracking it, you had to have the foresight and the ability to kind of forecast what the record was going to sound like yeah. with this compression or reverb or EQ on it and, and have a vision for what it would be and what needed to be there or not to support that vision. And well, experience allows you to listen around the unfinished bits. Yeah. Whereas a, a, somebody who's new yeah. might only hear the un, that it's unfinished. Yeah. And so, and so a lot of people I have really around now re, really require that the, you know, when you open a pro tool session, there's a lot of mixing already kind of happening in it, which I, I don't mind. I mean, that's nice to hear it closer to finish, but it also, um, logistically is a little more challenging because when you do really start mixing it, you kind of have to backtrack a little bit, yeah. clear some of that stuff out and start to work on you've, you've maxed over some problems that haven't been dealt with yet. Or, right. Right. Um, yeah. Especially know. if there's rides happening. Yeah. It's like the, the rides that maybe should have been edits. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I also feel like that kind of mixing is a way of like, I don't like giving singers reverb. I don't like giving singers a ton of hype and what they're hearing. Cause I feel like when a singer has to work a little harder for it, it really translates. And, um, there's one singer who I work with a lot who's, she's so talented and, and good. And, um, and when we were looking around at mics, there was this one mic that was beautiful sounding on her and clear and gorgeous. And, and when she sang, she totally held back cause she could hear everything so well. And, and, uh, and when we put the, the mic that was a little darker, on her, she had, she dug in and really fought for it and it made a yeah. huge difference. And so I think when you're giving somebody something that sounds so finished from the get go, they, they have to like, I don't know, it gets, it, it's easy to get a little lazier with it. So, and that nobody's right or wrong in that argument. I just, for me, I prefer working with raw materials a little bit longer so that the mix really becomes a finishing thing and you're making the arrangements and the instruments speak as opposed to doing it with EQ. Yeah. Well, also sometimes if you try and get sort of a finished, super hot vocal sound while you're tracking it, Mm -hmm. you know, go out there and put the headphones on and stand in front of that mic and hear what your voice sounds like in those headphones because it'll freak you out. You'll, you hear so much like, 
something yeah. like that, you're like freaked out. You don't want to do anything. So I can totally understand how that can affect a singer's ability to perform. All right. So now how about sharing a recording tip hack or secret sauce, something our rock stars could use today in the studio? I mean, I think a, it's not such a secret sauce, but I think not en- when you're tracking a band, not enough time goes into great headphone mixes and giving a musician something, a sound that will inspire them is it really goes a long way. And, uh, and also giving them, if you, uh, Brian McLeod, the drummer was talking about, uh, he, he was talking about a record he'd done for, uh, Bill Batrell, who's mm-hmm. a classic, awesome engineer. And he said, Bill would always crank up the toms way too loud in the headphone mixes, it, which was basically meant that Brian would never hit the toms too much. That's so interesting. He, so you had to really like want to hit it if you were going to hit it, which I think Bill Bushrell did, um, show crow, right? Uh, Tuesday yeah. night. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was and it Brian Tuesday night music club yeah. or dinner club or something. Yeah, yeah. I forget the title. Great record though. Yeah. He also plays pedal steel. Bill does. I think so. Wow. I thought it wouldn't he surprise me. He's kind of a genius. And he did, uh, I am Shelby Lynn, which is uh, amazing. Right. Like, Anyway, so I think giving people great headphone mixes is, is just a thing that doesn't get thought about a lot. And what what giving people what they need in the headphones and um, may not always be uh, the best sounding thing, but like it's these kind of basic ingredients that uh, give them the right kind of content. All right. So, them. how do you give people the best headphone mix? Um, I try like to, to I try to just keep it simple and and uh, robust. Not too many. Robust. I don't think anybody's used that word on the podcast yet. I like it. Yeah, I don't like not too many. You don't want like a hi hats and cymbals and stuff in the headphone mix because everybody's going to hear that anyway. And um, so is your headphone mix typically what you're hearing in the control room? Never or different. Okay, great. Yeah, I'm always because I don't. I want to be able to play with my mix in the control room and not have it affect what the musicians are hearing. So I'll set up a a send, a stereo aux send that go, feeds the headphones. And how will you listen to it? In head, the, in the same headphones? Or would you listen on your speakers while you're setting up the mix? Oh, I'll listen in headphones. And I'll have, you know, most of the studios around Nashville have these kind of multi-channel boxes that, yeah. um, where you can send a stereo mix plus more me's for everybody. And so I'll have one of those in the control room and listen on that. So with the same kind of headphones that the band is listening on and really make sure I'm hearing what they're hearing. And, uh, yeah, and then if I do have one of those kind of stereo plus more faders boxes, I'll generally just do a very drum-heavy kind of exciting drum mix with a little bit of everybody else in it. And then after that, everybody's got their own headphones. And I find with with people who work in those systems a lot, they know how to mix themselves. Um, sometimes with a band that's never done that, I'll forego that and just give everybody stereo cue. Because when somebody thinks they need to hear more of themselves so they can play a part right. What they're forgetting is that they need to hear less of themselves so that they'll listen hmm. to the everybody else in the band and play around. And, and the band is only as good as the weakest listener in the room. Hmm. I, I can't, I've heard somebody say that and it really resonated with me. And the, uh, you got to listening is the first step in being a good musician. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, that's good advice. I like that. Um, when you're sending a drum mix, you talk about a heavy drum mix. Uh, any advice about whether people should be hearing more of the room mics in there or less of the room mics? I I find that less of the room mics is is better. So that unless there's now I'll have like some some like heavily compressed little 
mic under the drums or something that's bringing a lot of energy and I'll sneak a little of that in. But um, in terms of big room mics, especially for the drummer who's already in the room, sometimes cranking the room mics up just confuses the issue and doesn't right. give them enough um, direct. It's like it probably sound. sounds even roomier in the headphones yeah. or something. Yeah. So generally I'll, I'll have them in there enough to, they can hear what it sounds like. I heard once that John Bonham would, would put headphones on and play for an hour just listening to the rooms and he would adjust his, how he played to, to hit the room the right way. But he would always listen, listen through headphones and just, and, and work on his dynamics and stuff just to hit the room right. Who's John Bonham? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> this guy, punk Rock band. stars, if you yeah. don't know, John Bonham, of course, the drummer from Led Zeppelin. So now how about sharing with us a cool suggestion for a hardware tool? Um, this could be anything physical that you have on a session that seems to make your sessions better, something you like having with you. A pair of NS10s. pair of NS10s, yeah. all right. Nope. No matter where I go or what it, when I'm tracking, like that's my favorite tracking speaker. Um, they're, you know, they don't for whatever reason. Like if you can make those sound good, it'll it'll sound good anywhere. And yeah. things things translate. They're really, um, they're they're good in any room. They're good at low level. So I, I feel like when I, when I'm working, especially in a new environment, I rarely come off of the Yamahas. I'll just I'll track on those. Yeah. Now, do you sometimes go into a studio that doesn't have a pair of NS10s and you bring them in? Are there any? Uh, do you have any good advice about how you um, tactfully include your spook- speakers in uh, another person's studio? No, but I feel like if you, I've never been to a studio. First of all, I've never been to a studio that didn't have a pair of NS10s. But I've also never been to a studio that that needed that would care what I was listening on or was precious about their, their monitors. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe that's not a problem that needs solving. So that's yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. All right. So now how about a um, cool software tool, something that you want to tell people about um, that's real helpful? Um, I mean, most people probably already have this, but the, uh, the fab filter pro Q. Yeah. I love it. It's, it's really a fun, easy and effective and it sounds good. It's a good EQ plugin. Do you use the, um, Zero latency mode, the natural phase, or the linear phase. Do you flip whatever flip it defaults to? Yeah, I think that starts out with the zero latency. That's the one I'm using, and it and does always sound great. Yeah, and well, it's just really good for um, you know my my EQ process is to start by taking out frequencies, and so and it's really good for that. And then I'll at then I'll, I might have another EQ after that that's more about a certain kind of color. Or if it, certain EQ sounds good on a certain instrument, I'll use that. Mm-hmm. But the Fab Filter is just a really great all-around EQ. Um, I love it. I dig it. I like it a lot. All right, so how about um, a resource or tip for the business side of doing this? You know, you've been doing this professionally for decades now. Um, I guess, is that fair to say? Decades. It is, gosh. Um, what, what advice do you have for people um, or a resource or tool that would help them out? The biggest financial stress relieving change that I made was to start um, squirreling away money for taxes. Because if you don't, and you know, and and January rolls around and you're starting to get all these 1099s, and you're like, oh, I forgot I'm going to have to pay taxes on this. And so that that has been, you know, looking ahead to for that kind of stuff, which was 
you know, most people in the world, it's really basic stuff, but for some reason, uh, music people don't seem to know, you know, and it's like, yeah. um, so just paying attention to your money and, and, uh, and being smart about, about that. What are some good tools that you like to use for that? I just use a Google spreadsheet where I just keep track of what's coming in. And I, and I have a, I have an LLC that my business has run through and it, which honestly it is probably not, I mean, it's a single member LLC. So it basically reports. Not same as being as a sole report. Yeah. It, it all ends up back on my bottom line as yeah. for my personal taxes. But what it does do is um, it, there's a whole separate banking thing around that. And it, and it, it's just this buffer between the business money and home. Cause when money comes home straight home, it's a, it's gone the second it gets in the doors on in you if you haven't spent it, it it's already accounted for and yeah. so having a separate business allows me to have a, a buffer to do set money aside for taxes i have a manager who i love who takes a commission and so i set money aside for that commission and then i really know what i've got to work with and what's coming home yeah. if you were to advise somebody on how much to squirrel away? Is there like a going percentage or number or anything like yeah. that? Or is it more I mean, like whatever you can afford to squirrel yeah, away? Yeah, I I um I take fifteen percent out of what is coming in for taxes because it I mean, I'm paying a higher rate than that, but basically because of the amount of write offs I'm taking, if I set aside fifteen percent, I've never owed more money. That's good. By, by good second. So that's a, and of course, this is advice to people listening in the U.S. because it's going to be a little different for people right. who are in other parts of the world. <clears throat> but definitely the advice to squirrel away for whatever that thing is that you need to be squirreled away for. That's good advice. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So now how about um, an organizational online resource? I mean, you talked about Google Docs. Are there some other online apps or apps that you use that really kind of help keep your shit together? Yeah. I, I use box.com for all my, you know, files in files out kind of management. I like the way it works. I, for whatever reason, I can't get my head around Dropbox, which is I think preferred by most people, but interesting. I hate the way Dropbox wants to put everything everywhere. Yeah. And, right. Uh, right. And, and I also don't like that. It, if the files are too big, I can't directly download it. It's got to go through the, and it's just annoying to me. And so for me, uh, box.com is, is great. Cause it really looks like a file server, except it's accessed through a browser. Right. So it's a little bit more like it's online and you just put something up there and you take it down as you need it. Right. Yeah. And I can leave things up indefinitely and, yeah. and, uh, and there's a ton of flexibility about, you know, I can make this a streaming only link or it's a downloadable uh, link. That's very Kip. You can uh, set up cool. password yeah. protections. if you. There's, there's a lot of flexibility. I just so. said that's very Kip. That was a cross between cool and hip. <laughs> yep. So Chris King, who was on the show recently, had the funniest quote about Box. He said he's been on there since, you know, he, was an, he considers himself an early adopter. And he said somehow he feels like they grandfathered him in. I could upload the Big Bang to, to Box and they would just put the whole thing up on there for free. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, wow. So I thought that was funny. They, yeah, they, I think I'm, my upload limit is now like 10 gigabytes, but I'm still paying a early, I'm not paying that much money. Yeah, right. I know I'm not worth that. So I appreciate it. Thank you, Box. Thank you, Box. Thank you. All right, cool. So now how about, um, these are last couple of questions and they're hypothetical. This one is imagine yourself, you had to start all over again. You know, you're kind of hitting a new city um, 
or maybe this is advice for somebody who's in in those shoes, uh, you needed a simple setup to get started recording and making music, needed to find people to record and make music with, and you needed to make ends meet so you didn't have to, you know, go consider another career instead. Mm -hmm. What advice would you have? If at all possible, I'd try to find paying work, doing whatever, and in a in a place where music was happening. If that's a a venue or a publishing company or a recording studio or wh- wherever it is, um, you know. So it doesn't have to be recording, but you want it to be around other people. I think that it's like if you're gonna have to spend t- spend your time doing something other than recording music to make the make ends meet. You should at least try to be near that, you know, or around it, and um, and uh, around people who are doing it, interested in it. Um, just because your odds of bumping into the right person are greater in that, and and, and finding an opportunity to, yeah. to move up uh, are greater there, as good, opposed to like a lot of people will go, um, you know, work in a coffee shop or whatever, which is right. Great work. In but, Nashville, that is kind of a not, a, not a bad way to meet other musicians right. in some areas, but yeah. not all of them. Yeah. So, and, and then, you know, a simple, gosh, it's so affordable. I mean, it's not cheap, but it's also like compared to what it used to be, you, you couldn't have a studio for less than a hundred grand 20 years ago. And now you can, uh, you know, with a laptop and a, and an interface kind of get started. And, you know, I think, um, Apogee and Avid and UAD all make great low dollar interfaces. And, uh, you know, if I was going to have one, I'd probably go for the UAD because you can record through their plugins, which I think is, allows you to have, spend less money on hardware. Mm -hmm. Um, and require less processing when it comes back to mix, if you've already processed it on the way in. And, uh, you know, one good large diaphragm condenser, like an, something simple, like an audio technica, 4053 is a really basic do all, do everything microphone. Um, and then just start going, going out and hearing where the musicians are and invite them to your closet to <laughs> record <laughs> and, I love it, and don't expect any money for it. It really is about at that stage. It's about getting experience and making relationships. And, and, uh, if you're lucky and work hard, then you'll, the, the money will come. And, uh, what about starting out? Um, would you advise that somebody who's beginning this now, it's okay to work for free? Um, I still work for free sometimes. All right. Yeah. I, I, I absolutely think that it's, I mean, I think you need to have an understanding that if it's not really for free, it's for experience and relationship. And if, and if something comes of the free work you're doing at a certain point, there needs to be a conversation, preferably sooner than later about what your contribution has been and what it's worth. Right. Uh, So I guess a way to look at it is to say you're never working for free. It's just that initially the connections and the experience might be the pay. And if that's valuable to you, that's what you're working for initially. So, and at some point um, getting, you know, cash or a check is more valuable than the, than the experience and the connection. (laughs) Yeah. When you're ready to get paid for, you know, properly for the work you're doing. Yeah. I think there's always, um, I have kind of a criteria about what work I take and there's, there's, there's three things. There's music and there's money and there's people. And as long as two out of those three things are clicking for a project, then it's, I'll say yes to the project. That's cool, man. That's great advice. Um, And I think about you talking about 
uh, letting go of your assisting gig, that was at a point where you were getting paid well mm-hmm. for the work you were doing, and you made a decision, a conscious decision to say, um, the opportunity to start firsting, first engineering is more valuable to me than the paycheck for doing the thing that I want to stop doing. Totally, yeah, yeah. Well, and just there's a point where it's like, okay, I could keep doing this, but there's no, there's a ceiling on that. And, and, uh, for me, there was at least, I felt like I, and it wasn't about, I could have done that forever and made enough money to survive, but it was, I just noticed myself becoming less interested in it, less enthusiastic about it. And so it was time for a change. All right. Groovy. All right. So now, uh, last question, hypothetical again, we're going to take the way back studio machine. You're going to go back a um, couple of decades, few decades. I don't know how far you want to go back, but you're going to find young Jason and uh, walk up behind, tap yourself on the shoulder, and you turn around and you're like, what are you doing here, old Jason? <laughs> and you're going to tell yourself, I came all the way back to give you this one bit of advice. I want to tell you this is the single most important thing you need to know to be a rock star of the recording studio one day. What, what would you tell yourself? I would tell myself to back that Mindy Smith record up twice. (laughs) Twice. (laughs) Maybe even once. Yeah. Yeah. Won't do it right. There will come a time. And we'll do a record for an artist named Mindy Smith. Yeah. Make sure you back it up. That would be a thing I'd tell myself. I, you know, there are things that I would, if I were going back me as I am now and starting and all of a sudden could rewind 20 years and do it, there are some things I would do differently, but only because I've already had those experiences. And I can't say that I would unmake those mistakes and be any better for it. Yeah. So I think that, no, man, I mean, it's all, it's, it is what it is. There's definitely some things I did wrong and some things that I waited too long to do. And, you know, there's, you know, it was Nashville at the time was a really easy place to live kind of an extended adolescence and that was really fun. Yeah. If I don't need to do I'm still that again. I'm trying to do that. Yeah. <laughs> it, you know, I told somebody the other day I was 17 for 15 years. <laughs> and, you know, and I don't need, I don't need more 17 year old Jason in my life. But if I could, you know, if I hadn't done it, I wouldn't know. So I, um, I would probably not change a lot about it. Yeah. Maybe your advice would be you're doing just fine. Just, just stay on the path. You know? Yeah. You know, maybe be 17 for five years. <laughs> Or like, hey, can I switch places with you? I'd like to be 17 yeah. again. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, Jason, thank you so much for joining us on Recording Studio Rockstars. Can you let our listeners know how they can find you, follow you, and, and uh, connect with you? Yeah, every, just through my website, jasonlenning.com, and uh, everything should be there. Okay, and again, the spelling is L-E-H-N-I-N-G. Yep, that's correct. All right, Groovy, well... Thank you, dude. Thank you, man. It's been a real pleasure hanging out with you. I'm glad I I got to know a lot more about you. You know, uh, an anecdote that I I may have even shared on this podcast was the time we were making a record together and your dad showed up and your granddad showed up. Yeah, yeah. And I took a photo of all three of you standing in the the door of the studio. That would have been a Silver Seas record. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool, man. And I don't think your granddad was a a producer. He was a pharmacist. A pharmacist. Yeah. All right, cool. And uh, he was making everybody feel better. He was. He was an amazing guy. He, he um, he would come in on my dad's sessions to just sit in the corner and just kind of look over his shoulder. It was really cute. Um, That's great. Yeah. Well, cool, man. Well, thank you again, dude. And I look forward to seeing more of you around the studio. 
Thanks a lot. All right, cheers. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RS Rockstars to 33444. Again, that's RS Rockstars to 33444. And I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. Music